Hello and welcome to the Body Track Academy, created by EPs for EPs. We'll cover all things clinical, business and personal growth to help you and the exercise physiology industry reach its potential. If you enjoyed this episode and find something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and tell your friends to check it out. If you haven't already joined the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up, join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Body Track Academy podcast. We've got another oncology podcast for you today and I've got my offsider back with me after six months absence. So welcome back, Nicole. It is good to be back. How was your trip? It was very good, very good. Nice break away, but um, I'm keen to get back and get back into the school stuff. I'm glad for you to be back as well. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, Nicole was actually away for the last six months traveling around Australia, which is just incredible. Um, she saw some incredible places and did some great work actually in the oncology space as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So the opportunity came up to go on this trip, more for a, a leisure and a holiday type thing, big lap around Australia. And I really wanted to make the most of the opportunity to go rural and remote and try to network with GPs and other allied health professionals to share the word about exercise oncology and the importance of exercise, particularly now that telehealth is a very feasible option. Um, it was a lot more challenging than we anticipated, but I had some really great chats with some really receptive GP clinics, um, hospitals. would love to one day be helping out actually in a hospital. Um, but yeah, really receptive. And again, a lot of people don't know about it, especially those places that are a bit harder to reach um, and where care is harder to get. So really stoked to be able to share some education and enlighten people and open the door to exercise and how it may help people, especially those who are suffering from really significant cancers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're so lucky to be able to work in, in this space. And I think the more people that we can be able to like support and, and reach and help spread the word is is a big, um, a really big important thing for us. So it was really cool that Nicole had had this opportunity and got to do so. Um, speaking of... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are going to be actually featuring today's episode on bone metastases or skeletal metastases. Now, that's actually a feature of advanced or stage four cancer. It's a little bit, um, uh, I wouldn't say less understood, but sometimes exercise professionals or even medical professionals may be a bit more apprehensive about what is actually safe and what is actually effective in this space um, because the research is is relatively recent in terms of the understanding and still there's a little bit more clarity that we need for some um, cancer types like multiple myeloma um, as well. So we wanted to jump on and talk a little bit about um, the different things that have helped us to actually feel a bit more confident in this space and actually some more recent research that has helped clarify that exercise is actually safe and effective when a appropriate procedure and process is followed, um, such as really evaluating um, the the safety and the effectiveness for, for our patients. And so we wanted to give you a bit of an opportunity to um, uh, piece that together and, and work through one of the papers that um, is actually quite recent. So, um, Nicole, do you want to tell us a little bit about the new research that is available? Absolutely. So, historically, it was said to patients who had bony mets to avoid 
that area, avoid exercise in that area. And that was the same guidelines we still see in old papers and, and recommendations from, say, like Macmillan over in the UK. That was the old paper. Um, you know, avoid that site because there is a high risk of fracture. We know that there's high risk of pathological fractures with untrained load um, and quick movements, rotation, etc. So it was easy just to say, let's avoid it. But the thing is, these people are living their lives. They're still trying to live independently, get out of a chair, get into a car, open a door, all the things we need to do day to day. Um, and they're going to be doing these movements. So isn't it better they do kind of trained movements under a trained professional and actually build some capacity so they can do these things safely and reduce mm. the risk of fracture, which is exactly what led the essentially the working group of the dream team of exercise physiologists, physiotherapists, um, oncologists, all sorts of people in the oncology space to come together and come up with some exercise recommendations for people with bone metastases and as essentially an expert consensus for us as healthcare providers and professionals so we can feel confident working within a bit more of a framework um, so we can safely prescribe exercise for these people who have even got pathological fractures. So the paper is pretty much what I just said um, and we'll link it in the show notes but it's exercise recommendations for people with bone metastases and expert consensus for healthcare providers and exercise professionals. So the main things that has come from this is that we know that exercise is really beneficial and the benefits when weighed up properly can outweigh the risks. Um, so we're going to work our way through the five recommendations they came up with yeah. um, and I suppose disseminate them a little bit and talk about the experiences we've had in the clinic. Yeah, we might um, backtrack a little bit there um, and actually uh, elaborate a little bit on what bone metastasis is. So hopefully that will help you kind of follow along a little bit more easily. So Bone metastasis is the spread of um, either a primary or secondary cancer to skeletal sites. And typically it is attracted to more around the axial skeleton or, or long bones because the tumor cells are particularly attracted to um, bone marrow. So it is quite commonly found in places like the pelvis, um, in the spine, in the ribs. Um, so, and they're areas that actually take on quite a lot of load day to day. So for patients who are wanting to maintain as much quality of life as possible and then they've told that they have this presence of essentially fragility and and um, cancer within within their bones, it can be quite confronting and concerning about what they can actually do and continue to do day to day. And we know that that will, can have impacts on essentially their ability to maintain functional capacity and to be able to also um, really offset the the impacts of not only their treatment but also their cancer itself. So, and quality um, of life. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, it is actually something that's quite important to not necessarily avoid but to actually help people manage as best as possible because it's a highly reported supportive need that's not met very mm -hmm. well and yeah. a lot of patients report really wanting to be able to enjoy and experience the benefits of exercise that they know is really really important for cancer but feel excluded when they if they're in this advanced age because there is concern around the the load on on the skeletal sites as well so um for us, it is important to be able to understand how to appropriately manage this and, and also help medical professionals feel more confident because it, it, in the paper, it also talks about how patients, they feel that their um, medical professional should be the one giving them advice about, is it safe for them to exercise? But then medical professionals actually don't know or understand 
not necessarily understand, they don't feel confident um, in their understanding of exercise and is it actually safe to be able to Absolutely. provide clearance? So it's how not can necessarily yeah, their, their forte. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how can we as a profession better consult and collaborate and um, help more patients get a have feel more confident about what they can and, and can't do as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And before yeah. I jump into the recommendations, because I am very excited to, to break this <laughs> paper down, um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the different types of yeah. bone lesions yeah. that we can see as well? Yeah. And I think this will just help us kind of follow through the paper a little bit more. So it, one of the things is that it's not necessarily just the presence of the, of the tumour in, in the skeleton. There is actually different types of processes related to the different types of lesions and that actually has impacts on how fragile or high risk the the site is so the first type I'll run you through is um, sclerotic lesions now these are actually lesions um, that are promoting an increase in osteoblast activity so that those are the cells that actually lay down bone so there's an excess of bone being laid down um, in certain sites and that's actually and it's in a really mismatched sort of way and it's actually increasing the mineralization or more porous sites in the bone so it's fragile because it's not quality bone it's literally just mismatched paper mache laid down bone that is actually quite susceptible to to fracture um, then also on the other side, there's also osteolytic lesions. So that is actually where the osteoclast process is outweighing the osteoblast process. So the bone is breaking down at a faster rate. It is therefore becoming more fragile um, and it is actually more prone to fracture than our sclerotic lesions as well. So the sclerotic lesions, sorry to jump back, they're a little bit more prevalent in cancers such as prostate cancer, um, small cell, lung and um, Hodgkin lymphoma. And then our osteolytic, so the ones where the bone is being broken down and it's a little bit more fragile, that is actually more common in breast cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-small cell um, lung cancer, not exclusively to those. There is also then mixed lesions. So in certain types of cancers, there can be a combination of those two processes happening within the body. So um, that is common once again in, in breast cancer as well. Um, and then probably the other type to be aware of is multiple myeloma. So this one is definitely an area where we need some more research. Absolutely. In, yeah, and unfortunately it is progressing in that way. It's actually a hematological or a blood form of cancer, um, but it is characterized by the presence of lesions throughout the body. And they're mostly those osteolytic um, or those osteoclast bias um, lesions. And it is unfortunate in this space because the pathophysiology pathophysiology is a bit different um, to the other lesion types. And quite commonly, you can't detect the lesions until at least 50% of the decay of the bone has occurred. So it has progressed quite a bit. Um, and there typically is quite a few lesions throughout the body. So how can we better support those patients is something that we're trying to um, they're trying to better better understand. So, um, yeah, hopefully that'll give you a little bit more insight into why it's actually important to understand what the presence of the lesions, where the presence of the lesions are, how active they are, and therefore 
actually how fragile or susceptible to fracture they may be. There's some different kinds of scoring systems that they do use to determine if an area is is prone to um, either the pathological fracture, which is due to the presence of the tumour cells, or it could be a fragility fracture, and that's due to the site being um, fragile due to those processes, and then um, uh, a, f a fracture occurring more likely due to load or or poor tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then spinal compression and hypercalcemia are the other um, main concerns for those with bone metastases. Um, there's a lot there. There's a lot. That's good though. It brings us. Yeah. It brings us very well into really into the first recommendation. Mm. And like like Caitlin said, it's it is a lot, and um, it's good to get an understanding of the different types. But essentially, the more we know, the better we are prepared as practitioners. And our, the first recommendation that comes from the paper is before exercise testing or training, perform a risk assessment to inform the likelihood of a skeletal complication from exercise. So exactly what Caitlin just said. It's really understanding. What kind of lesions have we got? What type are they? Where are they? How big are they? Um, and to a certain extent, what's the severity of them as well? So, Caitlin, how do we go about finding that information? Oh. <laughs> I wish it was so easy. Um, it is quite common that when we will meet with a patient that they're either, number one, actually unsure where all of their lesions Most are. Some commonly. Of them, yeah, yeah, some of them are, are very... Um, aware and it is it can be that sometimes even the oncology team doesn't know where all of the the lesions are um, but it is actually a really really helpful thing to reach out to their oncology team that's something that we try to do um, as soon as a patient is is booked with us with with advanced cancer and um, they do note that they have sites of metastasis. If it hasn't already been provided for us, we'll gain consent from the patient and we will actually contact someone from their oncology team, such as the cancer care coordinator, to try and obtain any um, bone scans or MRIs so that we have some understanding um, around where the, the sites of lesions or the, the lesions are and also how active they are as mm. well. You can gain clarification if it's not clear from the um, oncology team as well. It's something that's really highlighted in that recommendation is it's actually really important to form a level of communication and consultation, regardless of the stage of cancer, it should be really connecting with the oncology team, but especially in this sort of situation, have as much information as possible, document as much information as possible, and then you're putting yourself and the patient in the best position to be able to safely and confidently move forward with exercise. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, I'm going to read out recommendation number two because we kind of, these two do interrelate a lot. Yeah. So recommendation number two is consultation with the medical team is strongly encouraged before an exercise professional provides structured exercise for a person with bony mets to obtain key medical information and establish bi-directional communication for initial assessment and exercise training throughout care. So just as Caitlin said, that communication is key. It's it's really hard for us to find the information by ourselves. And patients might say, oh, I've got a couple of, you know, bony mets in my back or mm -hmm. something like that. But if we can find out a lot more detail, not only is that going to help us in our prescription, but I use it as education with the patient too. So important that the patient knows and is educated about where those spots are, not to induce fear, just to be educated about how to move and where yeah. to move and why, yeah. why we are being, you know, cautious about certain movements. Um, to provide them that education and then to make sure that our prescription is really accurate. And coming back to, I suppose, recommendation number one, this is all before we start any exercise testing. Yeah. So 
really critical if you can get information prior to an initial assessment. Sometimes it's not possible. And my recommendation, if, if that's going to happen, would be to go, I'm going to keep testing very, very limited today. Yeah. I'm going to keep a lot more subjective, um, a lot more um, safe and, and nothing loaded until we know those spots because we don't want to do any harm to anybody. Um, and it's so hard to know where those spots are mm. um, and where the risk can be. So really critical, would highly recommend getting that information prior to an initial assessment um, and and use the full team. So as Caitlin and I have mentioned, um, collaborating not only with an oncologist, which often we, we recognise it's hard to get a hold of, but actually get in touch with the cancer care coordinator or someone else in the team at the hospital who also can have access to a patient file um, and records of scans and, of course, after consent by the patient, getting a copy of those scans and the report because ultimately it's the report that breaks down yeah. the information we can understand. Um, you know, we're not radiologists um, and we're not oncologists, but we can understand location and severity. Absolutely. And in the meantime or and even if you have the report as well, really important to ask the patient in relation to each, each site, do they experience bone pain? Do they experience muscle soreness? Do they ex experience any neural um, symptoms? Um, and do they experience any tightness? Because those can be key features, not only of the severity or the, um, I guess the activity of, of the lesion site, but also how it is progressing. So um, it, this is something that you should do continually with the, with the patient as well throughout their treatment plan. Keep continuing to check in about how they are how each of those um, sites is uh, related to any pain or any stiffness or soreness. So those two factors, not delayed onset muscle soreness, <laughs> muscle soreness that is not um, a consequent, immediate consequential factor of, 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 exercise. Of, of exercise because that can actually be a sign of progression of the lesion or even fracture as well. So um, I'll touch a little bit later on what is how you can monitor appropriately using the the VAS score, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, in the in, in the initial before you start any exercise, try and get a bit of an understanding of do they experience pain at that site? Um, do they experience yeah any soreness around there as well? Because that can even if even if the the MRI or the report um, it does it says that the the it indicates that the lesion isn't too active or that it is actually safe to load. If they're getting bone pain, that could be a better indicator of, mm. of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. So use that dynamic um, rating and it's 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 very relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And we yeah. know things can change and it can change very quickly. Yes. So we're going to be seeing yes. them often more regularly if they're finished treatment particularly or mm. if they're in a phase of remission. We're going to be seeing them a lot more regularly than an oncology team. So yeah. we're a very regular port of call to document and, and ask these questions. Absolutely. Um, and building on that pain, I mean, obviously in an initial assessment, you're finding out the full background. You're finding out if they had any other cancer, what treatment have they gone through, um, what side effects have they under, undergone or experiencing currently, have they had any other fractures, have they had any falls, all those things you'd normally screen for in an initial assessment, mm. that's all going to build, I suppose, your profile and your guidelines to go, am I going to take these people through my typical strength yeah. or whatever testing I'm going to do today um, and making a good clinical sound judgment on is it going to be safe. Absolutely. So probably a good yeah. time for us to use a bit of an example, perhaps a, a client that we've either of us have had, Caitlin, about perhaps some of the tests we've done or ones we've modified to actually get a, an idea of yeah. how strong they are or what we want to measure. Yeah, definitely. I think before I go into any examples, I think you, you really, 
this is your time to use your clinical decision-making skills. There is really no <laughs> template here that fits everyone. It no has cookie to cutter. Be, yeah, no cut, cookie cutter. It has to be based on, number one, the sites of lesions, but then also their level of training at the moment. Like, mm. are, have they not done exercise for the last X amount of months because they've been going through treatment or they've been quite unwell due to treatment side effects. They're likely then to have experienced deconditioning. And if they've been going through chemotherapy, that's likely to be even further accelerated. So they're probably at a low level of low or a lower level of tolerance. And so keeping that in mind when you're making decisions around exercise testing, what do you, what do you need to know in relation to number one, improving their function, and then number two, improving their goals. I think that is just the most important con consideration that mm -hmm. you can have. Um, so I, I guess, for example, um, having people with metastatic sites around the pelvis can be so tricky because that's really our center of load. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because you need to know where the lesion sites are. Like, are they at the posterior superior iliac crest mm -hmm. where it's a little bit more um concerning to do things based in like flexion and extension or is it more kind of at the the base of the pelvis where we're a little bit more concerned about kind of like impact loading or squat depth and different things mm. like that as well so evaluate that first um but i will determine as well what are they doing day to day are they riding a motorbike to work okay, they're probably tolerating a bit of load around the pelvis. They've got a bit of strength through the adductors and through, <laughs> through pelvic stability. So they're probably okay to do a sit to stand. Mm. Um, but if it's someone that is getting pain when standing up from a chair, I won't get them to do yeah. a sit to stand. Not yeah. going to make them do 30 seconds as fast as they possibly no. can. No, no, <laughs> agree. So it's really bringing that clinical judgment. Yeah. We're going, okay, what do we need to do? How can we assess that? And sometimes I know... As EPs, we love a good number. We love some objective data. Patients do too as well. But there's a lot we can see by where your patient moves. Literally, yeah. You're going to see them walk in the door. Are they are they hobbling through the door? Are they, you know, flexed over? Mm. Do they need a cane? Mm. Do they need a walking aid? Um, are they, is their gait modified? You're going to see a lot about a patient very, very quickly. And sometimes we just need to use a lot more subjective um, yeah. and, and observations to make some calls about these things. Um, and then think, okay, what do we actually need to do to function day to day yeah. to get up and down out of a chair? Or can we work at strengthening some muscles in a more isolated way too? Yeah. I think that's such a good point, Nicole. Like that is definitely always a place that I'll start is I'll look at their gait and I'll look at their posture. So we know that sites of metastasis can be quite closely correlated with sites of um, atrophy or um, decline in, in muscle mass around that area as well. Particularly with pain, we know we're going to change our posture and our movement patterns as well. So has there been an alteration to, to their gait and their posture that is meaning that then without addressing that, we're likely to continue to contribute to suboptimal loading of, of the area? Um, this is actually a setting where postural considerations are actually quite important and that mm -hmm. is actually listed in the recommendations further down. Um, so I'm sure that we'll come back to this. But um, I think the one of the maybe the only kind of test that you can do really across the board is really gait and postural observation just mm. to get an idea of, of where you're at as well in in conjunction with your subjective yep. um, assessment and, and goal setting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know recently with a client of mine um, with metastatic, metastatic bowel cancer um, with a fair few spots um, in the spine mm. um, and essentially some that have become more stable in the ribs as well. 
Um, I could see a lot by the time she walked in the room. Um, an 85-year-old beautiful woman who's still very, very mobile and, and independently living, which is fantastic. Um, and I just asked her, what does she need to do to get her in the house? What does she struggle with? Um, she made it into the clinical right and she's still able to walk around with a slightly modified posture. Um, but she was having difficulty um, cooking, opening jars, things like that. Um, so I did do a grip strength with her. That was a reasonable measure to do. We weren't impacting any sites, could give her a bit of an idea of numbers. Um, but when it comes to exercise prescription, we've got to think a bit more cleverly about that because we have a lot of rib spots and spinal spots too. Yeah. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. But really thinking about that testing, think outside the box. Think beyond what you've done with Joe Bloggs, healthy populations, even musculoskeletal clients mm -hmm. you're getting where you're doing sit-to-stands, grip strength, seated rows, push-ups, all those sort of generic strength ones or, or balance, etc. And think about what's most applicable to the person. And don't get too bogged down on needing so many data measures and objective measures to be able to compare to later down the track. Yeah. Think practical. Absolutely. And I think it's there's actually a really important point in the paper that actually says put a clinical justification about why you picked the assessment. Yeah. So that'll cover you. It doesn't matter if it doesn't look perfectly clinical decision-making because you did a test for a patient because it's you felt that it was relevant. You just need to justify that in your documentation and that will really, yeah, mm. that's the most important thing. Perfect. Yeah. Alrighty, as well, so we get through in time. We'll come on to recommendation number three, which is exercise professionals best suited to prescribe exercise to people with bone metastases are physical therapists and clinical exercise physiologists or equivalent who have additional cancer exercise training and appropriate experience in working with people with a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Brings a smile to my face as well. <laughs> it's nice to hear. Obviously, this is something that Caitlin and I are very passionate about. We are um, exercise physiologists who specialize in exercise oncology and have done a lot of our own upskilling as well. Caitlin, why is it so important that someone with, especially with bone metastases, see someone who's got the experience and the expertise? Yeah, I think like it just really does take a, just a bit of a better, well, not necessarily better, but I think more of a comprehensive understanding of what is, what is the nature of um, clinical oncology considerations, but then also really how do you appropriately, like with experience, know how to to manage a patient with with metastases like it, it is definitely a unique consideration it's not the same as osteoporosis it's not the same as a um skeletal fracture it, mm. it really does take a multi-factorial approach mm -hmm. as well so i think really if someone has a little bit more experience in the oncology side of things they can really help a patient to be able to not only understand how to move and exercise safely but also to achieve a really kind of holistic management of of their of their cancer as well absolutely yeah. and yeah. I, I mean speaking from experience mm. it's it is really challenging and, yeah. and quite hard to get in touch with oncology teams at times and they they are flat out and you know in a hospital system it is really busy um but the more I suppose, experience you've got in working in the field, the better relationships you build with these people, mm. the far easier it is to communicate. Not to say that you have to be an expert in the area to chat to an oncologist, but it is a lot easier to get that conversation and that two-way communication, which comes with all the important information that we need. Um, and we now have those direct lines to so many oncologists and, and teams yeah. in around Brisbane, which makes that communication a lot easier. Yeah. Um, it also comes down to the confidence that both the oncologist and the patient has. So an oncologist is going to be far more likely to refer to a specialist who has the experience and the expertise because they're confident that their patient will be safe. It's all about the patient and that's why there is the apprehension. 
Um, but it's also really important that the patient feels safe too. Mm. And I think them knowing that they're seeing someone who's worked with someone else before them who's had bunny mets doesn't mean it's the same thing, but has the understanding and the experience um, to make those clinical judgments and, and feel confident in delivering exercise with them and give them the confidence too. Yeah. And I think like we ultimately really want to see more and more patients being able to access, access more exercise physiologists that do have expertise in this area. And then really practical experience is one of those ways that you can definitely feel more confident in that space. So where possible, reaching out to someone who does have experience in the space, like if you are seeing a patient in space and collaborate with them and help them, get them to help support you and, and make sure that things are on track. Don't be afraid to to reach out to them and ask for assistance. That is definitely a way for you to continue to build your your knowledge and understanding and ability to be able to help patients in in this space. So there's definitely ways to keep progressing, try and upskill yourself wherever you can, but definitely seek assistance and support from from other people in the in, That's a in great the, point. Yeah. That reminds me, I remember when I had my first um, really significant bone metastasis client probably two and a bit years ago now, um, and we're on the ESSA Cancer Facebook group. It is a private group, but you can join with you. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yep. And um, I reached out to... I believe one of the authors of one of those papers and someone else recommended a few other people around Melbourne who I privately messaged and I've had a few phone calls with different people and they're all EPs working in the space and this was sort of before this paper came out and it was really, we were heading this direction. <laughs> so it is really hard. Like we're not saying go for gold and do whatever. It's You still got to be really clinical about how you're making these decisions but there's a bit more guidance now about how to do it and sometimes it's nice to have a soundboard. Like Caitlin and I chat all the time mm. um, and you know, we're here as well. We're on the same page. So if you're wanting to chat to someone who want to upskill, ask people, ask other exercise physiologists or, you know, physios who work in the space, yeah. um, do some upskilling. We're going to hopefully be releasing a few more modules and things down the track as well with some of our own CPD. But um, yeah, use your contacts and upskill. Absolutely. Alrighty. Recommendation number four. Professional judgment should be used to consider if exercise testing at baseline and follow-up is necessary by weighing the risks and benefits of including the test or if the testing protocols may need to be modified. So it's a little bit similar to the first one. Yeah, yeah we've touched bit. on this yeah. um, quite a bit as well. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it does really ultimately come down to clinical justification. Just really make sure that you're documenting that and um, evaluating the, the necessity of, of your testing. What do you need? Why do you need it? How are you going to find out? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think a key one from that as well was there were, you know, the consensus really was to avoid obviously heavy loaded tests in the lesion site. So mm -hmm. the old information was to avoid the site altogether. This is coming around to say, no, we, we can look at loading around the site if we do it safely and light load and gradually load that way. Mm. But in terms of strength testing, we're not doing 1RM, 5RM or anything like that to that, that site. We can assess the strength around that site in other ways. Yeah. Um, and 5RMs, 1RMs are definitely not the way to go about it. Um, but yeah, making a bit of a clinical judgment on what else we could do yeah, to absolutely. test. Absolutely. And because low load or light load is really the, the most important place to start and that will give you a baseline about the area's tolerance and then you can use a rating from a VAS scale as well, either in the immediate period following or after and monitor, was there an increase in the VAS symptoms? Mm. All right, we need to rule that out. It's not tolerating it. So, um, yeah, there's definitely um, plenty of ways to still safely and 
and effectively test your clients. You There's know. a nice little example here from a great paper from um, Galveo and, and colleagues as well, which yeah. we can link in the show notes. We'll link all these in the show notes, guys. But, for example, in their study, they excluded people with metastatic bone lesions in the proximal femur from completing a 1RM leg press and the 400-minute walk test, okay? Proximal femur is a lot of low. That's also yeah. another spot we can get bony mats. And then they also excluded um, people with, is that people with lesions in the ribs, thoracic spine, or humerus were excluded from completing the 1RM chest press in seated row. So there's still other tests that can be done. If there's, if there's bony mets at the top half, we can do some lower limb testing and, and vice versa. But, you know, there are studies out there now showing why we have left certain things out, but doesn't mean we can't ever load yeah, that spot absolutely. eventually. Yeah. Alrighty. Now this gets the, more of the fun stuff and we can use a bit more of a, I suppose, clinical case examples as well. But the last recommendation is exercise prescription should follow the standard exercise recommendations as outlined by the International Exercise Guidelines for Cancer Survivors, with greater emphasis on postural alignment, controlled movement, and proper technique, as well as consideration given to the location and presentation of the bone lesions. Formal monitoring of exercise response and adjustment of exercise prescription should be ongoing. Yeah, I think. It just so uh, does such a good job of actually highlighting that this is a patient first. So we need to look at the whole picture. All right, what do we need to be doing to address exercise recommendations, but also the patient's health considerations? That's your first priority. Um, look globally at what they need and then come through with the considerations and the constraints for their sites of lesion as well. So that should just help mould and guide your decision-making around your exercise programming and, and progression. Yeah. And I love this little quote from um, from the, the research paper and kind of the consensus from the respondents and the mm -hmm. team. Basically, start with active movement and no load or weight and progress slowly, provided there is no exacerbation of pain or adverse symptoms. So it's not rocket science. Yeah. Um, it's something we would, we would do with other patients without bony mets too, start low, progress slow, um, and constantly check back in, has there been any change in pain or any other adverse symptoms as we go? And if we, you know, we're okay with no pain, no adverse symptoms, then over time we can gradually, progressively overload. Yeah. Um, but just go slow. Yeah, Movement's good. As a rule of thumb, if there is a quick increase or a rapid increase um, of VAS rating of three or more, or a slow increase um, of one to two, that can sometimes indicate that there may be presence of a, of a microfracture. So mm -hmm. those are some of the kind of reference points that you can use if you're monitoring is is it appropriate or is is the bone pain not normal? Yeah. I would then send the patient straight for further investigation mm -hmm. um, because it might not actually be attributable to the exercise. It might just be progression of of the lesion itself so have to remain mindful of how the vas is changing and don't be concerned if it is increased just send them through to to have it further Absolutely. investigated yeah yeah always you know rather be not over cautious but err on the side of caution when it comes Absolutely. to these things don't wait around so if there's pain change of pain then straight away refer on and get the appropriate care yeah. and investigation as needed the other thing i want to take from that as well is that postural alignment that you mentioned before so like Kaylin said, if you're observing changes in posture, whether that's be standing, sitting or walking, then we want to look into that a little bit further. Tell us maybe perhaps either an example or what you could sort of do when it comes to postural work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, particularly with sites kind of in, in the spine or in the ribs or particularly in the thoracic can usually see a bit of an increase in kyphosis 
which as we know will change the the loading and the um, kind of ideal um, optimal loading on, on the spine as well. So that's a pretty kind of straightforward one that we see fairly commonly, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in, in those regions. So particularly with pain, they start to become more and more kyphotic and it can start to obviously result in, in changes in from a musculoskeletal point of view as well. So identifying if that can be modified without changing pain or symptoms, will they benefit from actually strengthening to gain we don't have to obviously correct posture but do they need a little bit more to help strengthen and support that area um despite the presence of lesions there yeah, yeah. and one thing that this paper touched on as well is to take lit- or take learning from other literature mm. in terms of osteoporosis and other sort of um skeletal re- related complications and going well what are the recommendations there as well we know to avoid those really um, rapid or load-ended ranges yeah. in inflection, extension, rotation, etc. because there is that really high risk of fracture. Absolutely. And there's plenty of exercises we can do with avoiding those. Um, and ultimately to look at, what are, what's our falls risk as well? So if we're at high risk of fracture, what can we be doing in our sessions to reduce their risk of falls? So obviously we bring it into things like balance, um, working on gait, if there's some you know gait fl- complications there as well, um, and really helping them to mitigate their risk in and around the clinic as well as at home as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just really looking, not necessarily functionally, but also well, definitely functionally, but also at their personal goals as well. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So those are the main five recommendations. And like I said, we will attach this paper to the show notes. It's a great read. Um, it's a really nice framework. It's got some cool tables in there as well. And a few little visuals we'll add another one in too, which is nice to just to refer back to if you kind of need that guidance or you've, you've got another bony mets client and you're trying to figure out again, what am I working with then? What are my, what are my tick boxes or my check boxes to make sure I'm on the right track here? Um, and then ultimately, I sort of love the summary they've got at the end here. It's essentially summarizes why they've done this and, and why we want to keep exercising people with bone metastases. Regular exercise has the potential to maintain or improve physical function and health-related quality of life in people with bone metastases. And the perceived risk of skeletal complication should be weighed against the potential health benefits. And it's awesome. Yeah. It's what we've all felt and, and thought. But we just needed some evidence. And thank yeah. God for this team to, for doing this <laughs> research for us and, yeah. and creating this consensus and I suppose this collective point of view from trained and experienced professionals to give us the confidence to educate oncologists and oncology teams and, and patients as well. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you want to, I suppose, leave our, our listeners with going forwards in this space, Caitlin? Yeah, I think, like, it's it's such an, like, the paper is just so fantastic to just really help feel, help yourself feel more confident in being able to evaluate and, and assist patients. There is some really, really great gems in there as well, and there's lots of great research um, continuing to develop in, in the area. It's really commonly, like, we do hear patients, they just want to, really be able to enjoy, as I said, as many of the benefits of exercise as they can. So that's really our role is to be able to help them safely and effectively do so. So yeah. yeah. Reap all the rewards and Absolutely. I, we can see the space continuing to, to grow. It's we, we need more literature in the space and I, we can imagine it's going to continue to evolve the more people we get involved in it and the more the more buy-in we get. And ultimately it's a framework. It's a place to start. Um we're all our own exercise physiologists with our own clinical judgments, but if we weigh up what the risks are versus what are the benefits, and as long as we're keeping the patient safe and the patient is always 
our number one priority, um, then there's ways that we can continue to help them and use exercise to achieve all those amazing other benefits that we want. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we really just hope that this podcast has helped you feel a little bit more confident um, in approaching the space or seeking more guidance or seeking more support in, in the space as well. And please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help direct you um, in the direction of any more research or help um, support you as well. So, um, yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. Go Thanks out and help us. the rest of the yes. team. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us, guys. Um, and we'll talk to you soon. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Body Track Academy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and tell your friends to check it out. If you're not already in the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up. Join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content.